Father, your grace is marvelous in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the greatest news that we as sinners could hear that there is grace, there is forgiveness of sin in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, there is reconciliation. There is being moved from a relationship of hostility to a relationship of love and adoration and worship and obedience that begins here in this world and extends throughout the eternal state where we will forever delight in you without the hindrance of sin, the hindrance of unbelief and the weakness of our flesh that we experience here, but full, unadulterated, unhindered worship and obedience and joy and delight in your presence. So help us to think often of that, that we might be more faithful and walk more wisely in this world. Help us now to hear your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we have taken a little break as we're going through Matthew, you're well aware. As we're going through the end of Matthew and discussing the cross of Christ. So we have looked at Matthew's account of how he has recorded for us the suffering of Jesus, the eternal Son of God in flesh, in these last days of his life, in the actual atonement that he would accomplish for his people on the cross as he gave himself as a ransom for many. And so after looking at Matthew's presentation, stopping really in verse 46 of chapter 27, we've taken a few weeks just to look at other aspects of the cross, to look at the cross from different angles. And of course, there are many other angles than what we have spent our time on over the last few weeks, but these are at least some that are very crucial for us to understand and to meditate on. Now, last week we looked briefly, very briefly, at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 all the way through 26. Really, that section goes to verse 31, but we stopped at verse 26, and we noted the greatness of God's grace and His glory in upholding His justice at the cross. That we stand condemned, that's verses 9 through, I think, 20 or 19, There in Romans chapter 3, we stand as the human race condemned before God, guilty for our sin, the law having no power in us other than to expose our own weakness and spiritual malignity. In other words, our sin. And yet, the promise was that God provided a righteousness apart from the law, and that righteousness was in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who have received the gift of of grace, of faith in His name, have been justified. And the important thing that we noted last week was in God orchestrating salvation in that manner, He did it for this purpose, among others, but this purpose, to uphold His glory by upholding His justice or upholding His righteousness. In other words, in the glory of the cross, Christ being presented as a sacrifice for sin, as the only sacrifice for sin, as a complete sacrifice for sin, God upheld His justice by laying the curse of every sin of His people, both Old Testament, as He mentions, and all who would believe, on His Son. And so in His suffering, He satisfied divine wrath against sin. By His life, He satisfied, and even by His obedience and death, God's righteousness, His perfect righteousness. And it is then by faith in the name of Christ that we can be saved. And it is all to the glory of God. This week, we're going to look at another aspect, and the final one before we return next week back to Matthew chapter 27, and we see some of the results of His death. But this week, we're going to look at the topic, it's in your bulletin, of course, of the love of God displayed at the cross of Christ. So the cross of Christ, as it demonstrates, as it upholds, as it displays, as it declares the love of God. So this isn't specifically a a message about the love of God as a topic, because there are many other aspects we could mention about it, but it is to say the highest and the greatest, the most comprehensive, the fullest expression of the love of God was in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that through three angles this morning. I'm just going to take three different angles, three simple statements really, and then we're going to consider that. And we'll try to zero on in on just a passage or two in uh, each of these topics. The first one is this, as we consider the love of God at the cross. 
It's this. The love of the Father and Son for one another. The love of the Father and Son for one another is displayed on the cross. And the Spirit, of course, is in that. We're focusing on the love of the Father and the Son. It is the Spirit who upholds the Son, the Spirit who empowered the Son for His ministry, the Spirit who applies the work of the Son as the gospel goes out, even enabling His servants to preach that gospel with clarity and with power. But specifically, I want us to notice that on the cross, we see in full display the Father's love for the Son supremely and ultimately. And this is a fact that is often overlooked when we consider the cross of Christ. We consider what God was accomplishing for sinners, but we don't often consider what God was accomplishing, listen to this, for the Son and for His own glory. We looked at part of that last week in terms of Him upholding His justice, but even more, the cross points to the Father's great love for the Son. The Father is through the cross purchasing and redeeming his own gift to the Son whom he eternally loves. You could think of it this way as just a pithy way to say it or a concise way to say it. Is that in the cross of Christ, by the Father's plan, Christ is redeeming the Father's own gift to him, which is the world and a people out of the world, to worship him and to adore him and to love him and to serve him forever to the glory of Of God the Father. Now, there are certainly several aspects to the Father's love for Christ that we've noticed are on display at the cross. We've mentioned that the Father loves the Son at the cross because, as the Son in flesh, He gladly, Christ, gladly, willingly, delightfully, with full love for the Father, laid down His life as a sacrifice. And so Jesus said that in John chapter 10. He said the Father loves him because he lays his life down for the sheep. It is that act of love to the Father, that act of obedience, that act of love for those given to him by the Father in laying down his life for the sheep that demonstrates not only his love for the Father, but the Father's love for him. This is said in many different ways. In Philippians chapter 2, we learn there that though he existed in the form of God, he laid aside the display of that glory, the full exercise of that glory here on earth to cover it over with humanity for a time and to be obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. So on the cross, the Father loves the Son because he was laying down his life for the sheep in an act of obedience to the Father. And the Father loves the Son because at the cross, the Son was determined to bring maximum glory to the Father. We mentioned that a few weeks ago in John chapter 12. Father, glorify your name. An answer came from heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. Jesus said he has glorified the Father's name having done the things that the Father had given him to do on the earth. The ultimate expression of that then, of course, is the cross. And so the Father loves the Son... Because the Father's name is glorified through the Son at the cross. So we've mentioned some of those things. However, there's another, even more comprehensive way that the Father loves the Son through the cross. And that's what I just mentioned. It is because in the cross, by the Father's plan, Christ is redeeming the Father's own gift to Him, which is the world and a people out of the world. Let me point you to just... A couple of passages as we'll just consider this thought. And the first one is in John chapter 3, verse 16. You can jump over there if you want. John chapter 3, verse 16. We're well familiar with this verse, but we're going to connect it to another. He says in John chapter 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That is a glorious truth which we'll mention later. Here I would only note that the Father loves the world 
in principle and in reality because the world is the place where by creation he has determined to display his glory. More specifically, he loves the world and those in the world because as humanity, we bear the image of God. As distorted as it is, it is yet the image of God in man. And so he loves the world the world that was made for fellowship with him, though the world that is in now rebellion to him and outside of the experience of that fellowship, yet that is the reason we were created to glorify him as well in our fellowship with him. And so he loves the world and he redeems the world by sending the Son into it. That was the message at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, 29, that he is Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so he loves the world. He provides redemption in his son so that his glory once again would be displayed through a people who worship him in truth. But I want you to jump over to verse 35 and notice this. This is what I really want to point out of chapter 3. He says this, The Father loves the Son... And has given all things into his hand. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And there's our connection. There's the connection in John. It is this, that the ultimate purpose of the father in giving the son to the world is so that he could give the world to the son to rule and reign over not only the new creation but a people redeemed out of it to gaze on the glory of Christ forever and to worship him to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? He redeemed the world so that he could give the world to the Son. The ultimate act of the Father in the cross was love to the Son because to give him a gift that would come through his work of redemption. Now he mentions this idea in different ways throughout. The Gospel of John, he says, the Father in chapter 5, verse 22, just listen, I'm going to read some of them, has given all judgment to the Son. And he did so, he says in that context, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. In other words, the Father is passionately concerned that the Son be honored and worshipped even as the Father is worshipped, each according to their person and their work as the one God. In chapter 5, 26, he said he gave to the Son to have life in himself. In chapter 5, verse 36, he says he's given him works to accomplish, works that testify to the glory of the Son. The Father has given to the Son a people. You're well familiar in chapter 6, verse 37, that Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and of all he has given to me, he says in verse 39, I lose nothing. He mentions that several other times in the Gospel of John. All whom the Father has given to me. In other words, the Father has given to Christ a people who will be redeemed through his death and resurrection and who will forever worship him, who will forever declare and delight in his glory. Listen to the way this is summed up in chapter 17, actually verse 2. He says this, or excuse me, in verse 3 of chapter 13, he says this as Jesus was preparing for the cross. John announces that section, this new move of Jesus to the cross, at least in the Gospel of John. He announces that section with this, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. With that knowledge... He laid aside his garments and he washed the disciples' feet, anticipating the greater act of service that he would render at the cross as he laid down his life to make them and all of his people clean, forgiven, so that they might experience his life, eternal life. He says in chapter or verse 24 of chapter 17, he says this, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
Be with me forever where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. In 1 John chapter 3, the ultimate end is so that all of the children would be conformed to the image of the Son, and so declare His glory and display His glory forever. What I want you to notice here in chapter 17 is this, is that the son being on earth, the son's role as mediator, the son's role as the one given to the world for the life of the world, his flesh, was so that those who were given to the son out of the world, as he says in John 17, may see his glory, which the father had given to him which is a glory that encompasses his divine nature as the eternal son of God, and it is a glory that encompasses his work as redeemer. Redeemer. It is a glory that we will forever see and delight in in heaven. That's Revelation chapter 5, right? The father and the son there in chapter 5 before all of the gathered creation all of the creatures, holy angels, all the redeemed from both the Old Testament and the New Testament gathered before the throne, worshiping Christ as the one who is their salvation, who is our God. One said it this way, referring to John chapter 17, the verse we read. The ultimate hope of Jesus' followers turns on the love of the Father for the Son Just as in 1431, it turns on the love of the Son for the Father. So what is displayed on the cross is the fact of this. First and foremost is how much the Father loves the Son. And how certain it is that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to Him, will be raised by Him, and will worship Him forever. That is the glory of the cross. That's the glory of the cross. And we will forever delight in that marvelous truth. And in fact, along those lines, and we'll mention this a little bit later, but John reveals to us, specifically John in, in, a, in a clear way, that the Father's love for us as Christians is ultimately not us independently of the Son But the Father's love for us is because He loves His Son so much. And us being in the Son, His love for us is really His love for the Son that we get to participate in. Let me just give you a couple of verses before we wrap up this point. So you can hear this and just listen. In John 15, 9, He says this, Just as the Father has loved me eternally, first, forever, infinitely, me, the Son, the eternal Son, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. In John 17, 23, he says this, that I am in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. You see that? Ultimately, the Father's love for the children is His eternal love for the Son. For the Son. His eternal love for the Son, where the Father delights and is glorified by a people worshiping the Son forever as a gift from the Father for our redemption. Listen to how Paul says it in Colossians. Just listen, and I'm going to read this to you. This is Colossians chapter 1, if you want to read along. Colossians 1 verses 15 down to verse 20. And I'm just going to read it. won't make much comment, but I want you to hear it. Colossians 1, 15. One of the most marvelous passages in all of Scripture. He says this, speaking of Christ, right after he talked about in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says this in verse 15. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created. And stop right there. I want to just clear up confusion at the beginning rather than the end. Firstborn does not mean he is the first of God's creative works. 
That's the ancient heresy of Arianism. It does not end Jehovah's Witness. It does not mean that he is the first created and therefore the greatest of all creation. The context will make that clear. It is to say, this term firstborn, is to say he is the preeminent and most glorious one of all creation as the one who created all things and redeemed all things according to the Father's plan. Okay, now let's back up. With that in mind, let's start again in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. That's the idea of firstborn, protocols. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on heaven or things, or things on earth or things in heaven." That is the glory of the cross, is that there God is giving to the Son a world through whom He created, or by whom a world He created through the Son, so that at the end of the, of the redemptive work, all of creation would worship Him as both Creator and Redeemer. That's marvelous. All things were created through him, he spoke all things into existence. It was the Father's plan. It was the Son who spoke it into existence. Let there be light, so on and so forth. It is John 1, 1, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All things were created through him. And they were created for him. For his everlasting glory. He said this over in Ephesians with a view that he made known to us the mystery of his will. Just listen, chapter 1. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Listen, here's the purpose. Here's the end. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That is to say that all of creation exists so that it might resound forever by the plan of the Father to the glory of the Son who redeemed it and a people out of it. Imagine that. Everything, Christ is at the center of everything according to the Father's plan. Let me give you one, one more text actually on this. This is how Scripture ends, as a matter of fact. This is the ultimate end of everything. Listen to what he says in Revelation chapter. 21. This is after all of other gods of God's previous purposes are accomplished. The final judgment is taken place. And then he says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the end. That in the new heavens, and the new earth, there would be a new holy city that is a bride for a husband. A holy city of a holy people made holy by Christ to forever worship him and adore him. And live in communion with him and the Father. He says over in chapter 21 verse 9, Come here, an angel said, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then he goes on to describe it of a being of such a holiness and such a beauty and such a brilliance that our greatest imagination could not even begin to capture. And what is it? It is a gift of the Father to the Son. It is the bride of the Son who is the husband of his people. So when we look at the cross, what we see 
And what we should see is Christ there redeeming the world and the people according to the plan of the Father so that he might receive all things from the Father, namely to be the preeminent one among all creation and to be worshipped by a people whom he has redeemed forever, forever. So that's the first point. So we see the love of the God first at the cross by seeing the love of the Father for the Son. Secondly, we see this. The love of the Father and the Son for the children. The love of the Father and the Son for the children, for the redeemed, for the one, for the elect. So while the love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father is supreme, that does not in any way diminish the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who applies the work for the children, for the redeemed, for those who believe, for those who have been given to the Son by the Father. Indeed, as he was getting nearer to the cross, again, back in John 13, Jesus says this. Actually, this is in verse 1. The other was in verse 3. In John 13, verse 1, he says this. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Which I take there not to mean the end of his life, like it would certainly include that, but he loved them to the utmost, to the fullest possible extent. And he was going to love them to the fullest possible extent by giving his life for them. He washed their feet as an act of service, not as an end in itself, but as almost as a sign, you could say, almost as a picture, an illustration to point to the greater sacrifice, the greater act of humility, the greater bearing of shame on the cross. But I want to look at one other text to make that clear. And we'll go kind of quickly here. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. And you should turn there. We'll spend a little bit of time there. Romans chapter 5 on this point. Romans 5. Let me draw your attention to verse 8. But then we're going to swing back around and come into verse 8 again. He says this. I just want you to see the point here. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The father loves the son supremely. What he loves about the children is that they're in his son and he loves his son and they get to share in it. We get to share in it. But within that and within that complex of God's accomplishment of redemption, it in no way diminishes the great love that the cross displays of God's love for us, of God's love for us who know him and for all who put their trust in him. The cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of God's love for his people, of the Father's love in giving the Son to redeem them, of the Son's love in giving himself as a sacrifice, the love of the Spirit to uphold the incarnate Son in his work and pour out the love of God into the hearts of the children. Now, let me just set the context here. Look back up at verse 1 of chapter 5. 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. In short, now summing up, really, of the case he's just made, beginning back in chapter 3, in short, those who have trusted in Christ by faith, are counted righteous in him, that is, to be justified. They're forgiven of sin, and he says here that we stand in grace. Back in verse 24 of chapter 3, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So if we are in Christ, we are counted righteous by faith, we are justified forever, having our sins removed from us, the guilt of our sin Counted holy in Christ. That's why we can be called a saint. And then he says at the end of that, verse 2, he says, Therefore, because we stand in this grace, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. Which is to say this, hope in the glory of God. We exalt in the certainty, the anticipation, that we as the redeemed will forever partake and gaze on God's glory in heaven forever. 
It's the same glory, just listen, that he talks about in chapter 8. He says, If children were heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And then Paul says this, one of the most amazing statements, I think, in, in the New Testament, in terms of the redeemed. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is amazing about that is it comes from the one who suffered like the Apostle Paul, who suffered tremendously, who suffered beating, shipwrecks, nights in the sea, rejection, fear, robbers, dangers, floggings. And yet, he says, when he thinks of the glory to come, he says, I look at all those things, and I don't go, oh, yeah, but glory is greater. He says, I don't even think it's worthy to compare these sufferings with the glory that is to come. That's how magnificent it is. That's how glorious it is. That's how wonderful it is. He says in verse 21 of chapter 8, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And he says in verse 30, these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. It's certain in the mind of God. And it's certain here then in the hearts of God's children that they will participate in this future glory that God has designed for his children. So that is the context here. But he says something else even more amazing, and he uses the same term here for exalt. He says, not only do we exalt in the glory of God, but we also exalt, look at verse 3, in our tribulations. Now, that's not what you would expect. He says, we also exalt in our tribulations. How in the world can we exalt in our tribulations in the same way that we exalt in the hope of the glory of God? That seems to make no sense at all, but listen to what he says. He says, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why does it not disappoint? Because, and here it is, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What is he saying? Simply, or simplified, he's saying this, or just simply, he's saying this, that as we have in us through faith in Christ, a certain hope as a Christian that we will participate and see and know the future glory that God has prepared for his children in Christ. We also exalt in tribulations and the difficulties that come because of that faith because as we persevere through those trials, God builds within his people a greater confidence and certainty of all of those promises and therefore a greater joy and a greater hope. And he says God's children then delight in what they suffer because that suffering is producing in them a greater hope in Christ. Now I want you to notice this in the midst of that. Here's how, here's what's behind that. He says because The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, it is the specific ministry of the Holy Spirit to convince and assure and communicate God's love for his children. It is to confirm in us the Spirit's ministry, as he'll say later in chapter 8, verse 15, the kind of faith, the kind of intimacy with the Father that in the midst of the trials, in the midst of this life, we can cry out as children, what? Abba, Father, Abba, Father, that we have the most intimate relationship with him through Christ. So through the trials come an increased sense of God's love for us as we grow in faith through the trials and understand more deeply the grace of God in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is actively producing that in our hearts through trials as we respond to them through faith, through faith. But then he, gives, he takes that even more. In some ways, you could say, well, that's the subjective sense of it. In other words, it's what we experience. It's what we feel in our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he works deep within our soul in the midst of trials, as he works in us confidence of all that Christ has accomplished for us. But then he objectifies it. He gives it a focus. 
He gives it an end of our faith. And he says in verse 8, or look, actually look at verse 6. After saying this, love is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He says, for, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. And here's our verse. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says in verse 9, we have been saved from the wrath of God through the death of Christ, through sharing in his life, through participating and being given the fruits of his work through faith. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying to a Christian, he's saying to his children and to us, if you ever think that you could doubt the love of God, you merely look to the cross because it is there that God accomplished your salvation through the gift of his son, through the death of his son. And he emphasizes the greatness of this love of God there in two ways, two ways. The first is this. The first is by setting a contrast with how deep our sin really is and how unworthy we were of that love. We, we mentioned that last week. This is really building on what he's already said, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 down through verse 19 of chapter 3. But look how he describes us in this passage. Look beginning at verse 6. There's four ways that he describes this. If you want to say, what was your condition before Christ? Well, here it is. Helpless. Verse 6, helpless. Helpless to do anything about the condemnation that stood over us. We were helpless. He just says in verse 8 that we were sinners. The implication of verse 7 is that we're not even good or righteous. And then he says in verse 10, we were enemies. And he calls us ungodly. So the greatness of the Father's love is by the contrast of what we were. We were helpless, ungodly, unrighteous enemies and sinners of God. And in that condition, God gave his Son. In that condition, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In that condition, Christ took on flesh, suffered, and died as an ultimate demonstration of God's love. So the greatness of God's love is demonstrated first... By who he shows it to, the unworthy, the condemned, the guilty. But secondly is this. There's a second way that we see the love of God at the cross, and it's this. We see the love of God at the cross because of the infinite value of him who died there. It was the son that was on the cross. It was not a good man. It was not merely a righteous man. It wasn't even merely a sinless man though he was all of those things, but he was the God-man who was those things, the eternal Son robed in flesh. It is the Son whom the Father eternally loves that was on the cross. The Son who has known as one equal to God eternal fellowship and glory. He is the one clothed in flesh who died on the cross. How great is the Father's love? This is how great it is. He gave His own Son, His beloved Son, the only Son who was equal to Him in glory as God, whom He's loved from all humanity, and He laid on Him the curse of the law of the sin of His people. That's how much He loves His own. That's the great display of His love for the children that He gives as a gift to His Son. And I want to say here, and I know we mentioned this last week, and I want to say this with the absolute clarity, and I want to say it with deep conviction, and so utterly important for us to understand this, that it is an utter perversion and distortion of God's glory and the very meaning of this passage in the gospel to turn it around and make the sinner the center of God's saving and redeeming work. As if... The greatness of God's love were our value and not the glory of the Son. That is absolutely crucial to understand. 
The whole glory of the passage, the whole glory of salvation, and the whole glory of God's love is not because we as the sinner are so infinitely valuable that God would die for us. The glory of salvation and the glory of God's love is the infinite value of the Son who is on the cross redeeming the people. Do you see that? That is absolutely crucial. There are so many Jesus is my girlfriend songs and services in churches that make it as if God's great obligation and joy in the universe were to redeem us because we're so valuable in his light. That makes my soul cringe. I don't know about yours. That repulses my soul. What Paul is pointing us to here, what all of scripture is pointing us to here, and what the delight of the believing sinner is, is to look at the cross see the demonstration of God's love and worship him because of the greatness of his own cost to redeem us. We love him. We love him because he gave for our salvation. We who were helpless, ungodly, enemies, condemned, wrath-provoking sinners, he gave his infinitely glorious son to redeem So the measure of God's love, and again, the point what Paul is making here is our confidence in our salvation, our delight and joy and glory in our salvation, the certainty of our faith is because of the greatness of the demonstration of God's love for sinners that he accomplished in his infinitely glorious son. In other words... If God were to fail on one of his promises, it would indicate a failure of love for his son. And that would never happen. It would indicate his promises to his son could fail. That would never happen. He loves his son. He crucified his son for our salvation. And therefore, our salvation is certain and the future glory is certain. Again, John 6, he puts it this way, Jesus does. All whom the Father has given to me, this is the will of the Father. What? That I raise them up on the last day. That's the will of the Father. That I raise them up on the last day. That they come to me and that I raise them up. But that has, beloved, the deepest, deepest implications in terms of our own comfort and our own faith. Which is what, again, this passage is getting at. And I can just say and be personal on this. And I think when I say this, I would be connecting with everybody here who knows Christ and has walked with him for any period of time, when I have experienced the deepest trials, those kind of most profound internal trials, the most profound disappointments in life, frustrations in life, confusing things in life where it cuts very deep in your soul and you just you have no answers, you can't explain it, it's inexplicable. You can't explain the providence of God other than to say that it is his providence. Things are the way that they are. There is in those moments sometimes the temptation that can come to our soul. It has come to mine. Will you almost wonder how can God be good in this? In other words, to delight and trust in the glory of God becomes difficult because the trial is so inexplicable and it takes this form is we can sometimes be tempted to complain against God as though there were some deficiency in his goodness and in his wisdom and I know that in my own experience if that temptation has come that thought has whisked across my mind I look to the cross behind me an empty cross and you know what that produces deep repentance how in the world Could we as sinners complain or doubt ever the goodness of God in our life, no matter how mysterious it might be to us and the way that his plan works out in our life? How could we ever, looking at the cross, doubt the goodness of God? He's removed that from us. He gave his son, his own son, his beloved son, his dear son, as a substitute for us that he might redeem us from our sin, the guilty, the condemnable, to participate in his glory, to know his forgiveness, to cry to him as father, to experience the joys and the delights of heaven forever. That's how great his love is for his children that he gave his son and were in his son 
And so he loves us because we're in his son. And so when we have those trials and when that thought might come, we merely think of the cross and we can say, I may not understand anything really that you're doing, but I know that I could never doubt your goodness. I could never doubt the depth of your love. I could never doubt the wisdom of your plan for my life, even if I don't understand it or this world, because the cross removes that. There God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if we do have those feelings, we need to repent and acknowledge the own littleness of our faith and the self-centeredness of the way that we view life as if it should go according to our plans rather than God's. Now in regeneration, in the gift of new life, in that work of the Spirit in the heart of a sinner that is part of salvation, part of the gift that Christ purchased for us, the Holy Spirit enables this. The Holy Spirit enables the sinner to look at the cross and to perceive this love of God, to perceive before God our own condemnation and to perceive God's provision of a Savior in Christ and to trust in Him. That's what happens in the gift of regeneration, in the gift of faith, is that we see that cross, and it's not merely a moment's emotion. It's not merely a truth that we acknowledge to be true as compared to other things. It is the very hope inside of the Christian. It's their confidence. It's their certainty of future glory. It is their comfort in every trial and doubt and pain. They look at Christ and they perceive the love of God expressed there, and they trust in Him, and they love Him, and they worship Him. They have the faith, though maybe not at the depth, we're all working there, but that Paul expresses in Galatians 2.20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen, can you finish it? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was captured by that. Christians, we should be captured by that truth, that on the cross, the love of God for his people was displayed by giving up the Son and the Son's suffering for us, so that we could say, I live by faith in who? The God who loved me because he was crucified for me. So how do we see the love of God at the cross? We see the love of the Father for the Son who through the cross was giving the Son all things that He could be worshipped and glorified in them forever. And through the glory of the Son, the Father is glorified. We see the love of the Father and the Son for the children because of the infinite value of the gift of the Son that the Father gave to purchase our redemption so that we might participate in His own eternal love for the Son forever, being forgiven of our sin, participating in His life. And then there's one last way that we should see the love of the God, love of God in the Son, and, and that's this. The love of the children for the Father and the Son for one another. In other words, we see the love of the cross as it's worked out in the life of God's people, in the life of God's people. Let me explain that. I mentioned that the love of God is experienced by faith, known only to the one who has experienced regeneration, who has seen the glory of God in the face of Christ at the cross. It is the Christian and the Christian alone who has spiritually tasted of the kindness of God in the cross and in redemption. It is the Spirit alone, or the Christian alone who has been born again by the Spirit and delights in all that God is and all that Christ is and all that He is for us. And because the Christian delights in those things, because the believer genuinely trusts in Christ who is there, can perceive the love of God on the cross, who rests in that and gains confidence in God in Christ in trials. Because of that, it is the Christian then, and only the Christian, who can and will and must display that same character of love in their own life for others and for each other. Listen to Jesus' words. And again, I'm just going to give you a few passages. In John 13, 34, he says this, a new commandment. Remember, this is after he washed his feet on his way to the cross. This is him knowing that he was about to lay down his life for the sin of his people. He says this to his disciples. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. In other words, the newness of the commandment is the measure of the love demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice, in his sacrifice for sin. Paul puts it this way. Just listen, I'm going to read it. In Ephesians 4.32, uh, he says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Listen. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he says, Christians, church at Ephesus, church here, every gathering of God's people, every saint of God, our love for one another is to reflect God's love for us at the cross. We can't imitate, of course, the atoning reality of the cross. That's accomplished. It's finished. That's only in Christ. But what we can imitate and what we must display in our life and be aiming for is a display of the same self-sacrificing love that was displayed for us in our sin by God through Christ. That means, in Paul's own words here, we're to be forgiving. We're to forgive one another whoever has a complaint against another person. It means that we are to pursue being tender-hearted toward each other. It means that we are not allowed to allow bitterness in our heart towards one another. We are not allowed to let anger go unchecked that we would sin. We are to display the love of the cross. Let me give one last passage on that. And this is where we're going to wrap it up. In 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4... Verses 7 through 13, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us. That's kind of picking up on the language of Paul, isn't it? How God demonstrated his love toward us. Here's how the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, this full satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the love of God at the cross finds its expression in this world through the love of God's people for one another. Through the love of God's people for one another. As a matter of fact, he says this a little bit later in verse 12. He says this, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, no one has seen God physically, but his presence is manifest. His glory is manifest in his people as they demonstrate love to one another. He said it in his prayer, right? That's how we'll glorify him in this world. So there's no way to say that you love God on the negative side if you do not desire to keep his commandments, which he says in chapter 5, verse 2. And if we do not love the brethren, if we do not love the brethren, if we do not love them by sacrificing for them, walking in forgiveness, serving with our gifts, encouraging towards holiness of life and faithfulness in Christ. That's how we know we've been born again. He says, by this we know in verse 13 that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We know that we're born of God and his seed abides in us and the spirit abides in us because we are a people who not only profess salvation for our sins by what God accomplished on the cross, but we demonstrate that faith and reality of life by showing the same kind of love to one another. Now I want to mention three ways that we do that from what he said here. And I'm just going to mention these. One is, it means this. It means that the love that we show to one another, this is so important, it originates in a changed nature, not because of the loveliness of the person you express it to. 
Does that make sense? In other words, our love isn't because we're a bunch of lovable people. And so therefore, all of you just provoke such love out of my heart and each other's heart. Well, how can I not love you? You're so wonderful. That's not the kind of, that's how the world operates generally. But the love of the Christ is different. It says, I have been born again. I have trusted in the grace of God at the cross. In his redemption, I have experienced the love of God. I have the spirit in me who provokes love toward others. That's why I love them. Because of the love I've been shown. And that means that I can express that love to those who oftentimes and very often are so very unworthy of that love. In this sense, they're not provoking it, but I show it or must seek to. I do it very poorly most of the time. But that's our goal. That's what we're seeking to do. So the love of the cross means then in, in our life of his people that it's because of what we've experienced. It's in Christ that we show love to one another because we've received it. Our love isn't based on the other person deserving it. Quite the opposite. How was God's love expressed to us? What were we? Sinners, enemies, ungodly, helpless, unrighteous, condemned, evil. That's the condition we were in when God loved us. What is the condition of the ones that we show love to? Well, that, like our own. Or even for the redeemed, that's kind of our general love for the world. But even the redeemed, we need to show love to one another because God has loved us. That's the sole motivation. Secondly, our love is to be marked then by self-sacrifice and not self-protection. The Father did not love us by protecting the Son from the cross. The Son did not love us by shielding himself from the pain of the cross, but just the opposite. The Father loved us by giving what was most precious to him for us. The Son loved us by giving his own life for our salvation. That is to be the character of our love for one another. That's what we're aiming at. That's the standard. Nobody in here does that perfect, but that is the standard. That's what the Spirit of God is producing in his children Listen to what he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. That's love. That's the kind of love that should mark us. And third, it is a love that flows out of understanding the gospel and fellowship with the Son. Well, there's more to be said. And I'm at the end of my notes. Actually, I'm not totally. But I would just leave us with this. When we look at the cross that we need to see there the Father's infinite, eternal, and great love for the Son. We see there the love of the Father for us as children because of the infinite value and glory of Christ, the measure of what God gave in order to purchase our salvation. And that kind of love that God has extended to us is the kind of love that should characterize and shape what we're pursuing in our lives. Imperfectly, stumbling along the way, but it should mark what we're all pursuing in our lives with our wives, our husbands, our children, our neighbors, especially our church. And so may God give us the grace to do that as we come to understand him better. Uh, it, we're right at the time, so I don't know if we had a song, but I'll pray and uh, then we'll be dis- we're dismissed. So this is our benediction. The prayer is our benediction. Father, we thank you for your great love at the cross. Help us to to realize it more in our hearts. You said, Holy Spirit, by the very word that you inspired, that that love is poured out into our hearts and we know it who have trusted in Christ because we have tasted of our sin and we've known the kindness of forgiveness, the grace that we've received in the Son, the greatness of the love displayed there. You said later that he who did not spare his own son, will you not also with him freely give us all things? Because it is the son whom you gave, it is the son to whom you made promise, and is the son in whom we trust. Thank you for the gospel. Help us again to have a faith that grows, that perceives it more and more. And may that faith then be demonstrated in our own homes first. And then in the life, our life together as a community of God's people, of your people. And when we stumble and fail along the way, make us quick repenters, 
quick to seek forgiveness, and quick to walk in paths of righteousness. And Lord, for those who hear this and don't know that kindness, who have not perceived your love, who find no special glory that will linger in their hearts once they walk out these doors, if it is even there now, who will live their life, eat, drink, go to bed, and make their pursuits without the slightest concern or impact because of your glory at the cross and love for you and desire to worship you with their lives. I pray that you would remove the scale, the blindness that covers their heart and show them your glory. Show them the true nature of their condition and give them the gift of life, the gift of faith, the gift of hope in your son. We ask you to do this for your everlasting glory. And we pray it in the matchless name of our dear Redeemer, the beloved Son, in the name of Jesus, amen.